So, the question is, what do you think about when you think of that word unity? Because there's been a lot of ones that were mentioned in the first six verses there of Ephesians 4. Well, some people think of a large organizational structure, uh, which uh, the dominant model, by the way, of many uh, people within the ecumenical movement. That's what they think of generally. It's a governmental model in which unity comes from the submission of each of the individual parts to authorities. Others think of unity as conformity, in which each Christian is supposed to be the exact boring replica of every other Christian. You know, there might be some groups on the southwest side of the South Island that might come to your mind. You know, by the way, that uh, it, it, unanimity is not the same thing as unity. I hope you understand that. It's not a good thing to try to look and act and talk and think all exactly like. The unity the Bible speaks of is something different from those models. And, and, and th- these texts give us a model for church unity, which is not that of some well-oiled organization or of, you know, uh, identically manufactured objects coming off some assembly line, <laughs> right? The, bo- uh, the, the, the biblical model here is a body, a body. A body has many parts, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, and that's the way it should be. I mean, you think of it, uh, unanimity would be you know, the, the body not being a body, but just being some big, ugly nose. Well, that's disgusting. A, a nose is a great thing to have. You should have one. But, you know, it's it, a body works and, and is certainly healthy and looks better, too, by the way, when it's uh, all the parts together, right? So a body contains diverse but essential and contributing parts. Without the things that that Christians share, there is no church at all. (laughs) A church has to have all these things in in unity and diversity. But on the other hand, without a diversity of gifts, the church is not healthy and, and it cannot function completely any more than a body can function completely without, say, arms and legs. That's not a good body, is it? It's not a healthy body. So it's important as we come to Ephesians 4 here, we, we remember that. And, and fortunately, we have the words of the living God here that we're going to read together, which point us to how can a unified church have diversity? How can a unified church have diversity? Well, let's see what God says here. Ephesians 4, verse 7. Notice it starts with that contrasting word, the conjunction, but. Because the first six verses have pointed us to the unity of the church. So now we come to the diversity, and it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions 
the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now I'm going to stop there. <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff in the next verses to come, so, and there's plenty of good stuff here to talk about. So what are we looking at here? Well, here, here's my proposition. That God wants His church to glorify Him through diversity. Certainly unity glorifies Him, and it is God's design that His church be unified, but God has also diversified His church, and we're going to see some important points here. In fact, i got three ways that Christ bring, brings diversity into His church from this passage. Three ways Christ brings diversity into His church. Number one, we see in verse 7 that Christ gives gifts to every believer. Christ gives gifts to every believer. He's the head of the church. He has the authority to do so. And how does He do this? Well, we, we see that, number one, that these spiritual gifts are enabled by grace. They are enabled by grace. Because notice what verse 7 says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear that grace was given to every believer. And it's interesting in the original Greek text, uh, Paul's using the definite article there, which is indicating that this is the grace. He's using that definite article, the. It is the grace. The grace that is, in other words, it's the grace that's unique to Jesus Christ. And you say, well, why is that important to highlight? Well, this grace is the enabling power that makes the special gifts function in the church all for the glory of God. It's, this is how it happens. And number two, notice that the spiritual gifts are unique. They are unique. It, my translation says they're measured out to believers. They're measured out to believers. It's not like, uh, not like, you know, like my mother sometimes when she cooks. Uh, she's she's one of those people who loves to just take pinches and dashes and throwing stuff in sometimes, you know, doing the hobo stew kind of a thing. You know, just grabbing stuff here and there and throwing it in, and and it all and it always turns out great. By the way, it's very yummy. But uh, you know, some people are not the pinch and dash and throw kind of people when they're cooking. Some people are using the recipe and they're, you know, they're measuring everything out to exactly what the recipe says because they're so afraid of messing it up. Well, it appears here that Christ is one of those kind of people. He's measuring. Now, he's the one who made the measurements, and he's following exactly these measurements, and they are unique. Apparently, he doesn't repeat his recipes. <laughs> They're totally unique when, they co when it comes to believers. And so this, the, the measure or the specific portion given here is by sovereign design coming from the head of the church. See, the Lord Jesus has measured out exact proportions of each believer's gift. See, not only do we as believers have different gifts, but see, even people with the same spiritual gift don't necessarily have the same measure. 
that makes you unique. You're special. <laughs> right? You are. And so what are the implications of that then? Well, since the gifts are sovereignly given then, no gifts should be sought. You shouldn't go and seek for a specific kind of a gift because you think that one is awesome or whatever your your motivation might be. See, you don't get to pick it. The sovereign Lord of the church has picked it for you. <laughs> and that's a, an important implication. And since they're essential elements in God's plan, no gift should be unused. See, if the sovereign Lord of the church gives you a gift, you must use it, not for yourself, but for His glory and the edification of His people. And since they come from this sovereign Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, then no gift should be exalted. You didn't earn it. There's nothing you did to get it. Jesus gives it to you. Therefore, you're not to use it for your own glory, but His. And so we each have a gift that is measured out to us. And it comes with certain distinct capabilities and purposes. And so each of us is given a specific gift through which then we're to use that to minister to each other in Christ's name. And the list of specific gifts in the Bible are not strict descriptions of the spiritual gifts. Uh, for instance, there's not a single kind of teaching gift. Uh, the, the, the teaching gift, in other words, can manifest itself in various ways. Uh, for example, a hundred believers with the gift of teaching will not all have the same ability, and they're not going to emphasize the teaching gift in all the same way. That's what I'm getting at here. And so one may, for example, may excel in public teaching in the church. Another's teaching gift will be maybe for instructing children. Uh, another might use it in, in various other ways, maybe maybe one-on-one -on -one discipleship, for example. There's various ways, even just the spiritual gift of teaching can be manifested in various ways. And by the way, nor is it that a believer's single gift will be restricted to own only one category of giftedness. For example, an individual gift may include a, a number of specific areas of giftedness. And, and that can show itself in limitless variety of combinations. Okay, So we, we just need to be aware that uh, sometimes we... We, we, we kind of put God in a box sometimes. We put ourselves and, and other believers in a box when it comes to spiritual gifts. So just try to resist that urge. So what are we seeing here in, in the Bible is that Christians are not some just assembly line production. Consequently, no Christian can replace another in God's plan. You're unique. God only made one you. He has his own individualized plan for each of us and has individually gifted us accordingly to fit, to fit in the body. We're not interchangeable parts in Christ's body. And so when a believer does not minister their gift properly, then God's work suffers. The body suffers. Because God has not gifted another Christian in exactly the same way or for exactly the same work. 
So use your gift accordingly. And that's why no Christian is just to be a spectator. You're to be involved, actively involved. Every believer is on the team, and you are a strategic part of God's plan. That's good news. So that's, that's why you're unique. So let's think of another way here of how Christ brings diversity into his church. We, we, we've seen the first way. Number two is, how did this happen, I guess, is, is what we're getting at here in verses 8 through 10. And we see that Christ obtained the right to give gifts. Why is he doing this? How, how is he able to do this? Well, that's verses 8 through 10 here. And by the way, your Bible's probably like mine. You notice that... Uh, those verses 8 through 10 might look a little different in the way it's designed and written out in your Bible. Well, that's not, that's not a mistake. You know, the, the, the printer didn't mess that up. Uh, that what the printer of your Bible is doing there is highlighting that's actually a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. And, and Paul's looking back to Psalm 68, verse 18 as a comparison passage to show how Christ received this right to bestow those gifts on the believers in the church. And by the way, I'm not going to read all of Psalm 68, but uh, you do need to understand that Psalm 68 is a victory hymn that was composed by David, and it celebrates God's conquest of the, well, what ends up becoming the city of Jerusalem. It was the Jebusite city at that point. And it's the triumphant ascent of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant that was going up Mount Zion. And so after, this was a common thing, by the way, back in those days and carried on for many centuries after that, when a king would win a great victory in battle, he would bring home the spoils of war and and he would and sometimes he even bring back enemy prisoners and he would parade all the the stuff and the people bef, uh before his 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 hometown if you will and so that's that's the imagery here and and by the way another feature of victory of a victory parade would be where the king would display his own soldiers before the city before his own people See, sometimes his own soldiers would get captured in battle. And hopefully, uh, obviously, if he wins the battle, then he would be have this, this authority and this ability to free his own soldiers. And so that's part of the imagery going on here. And Paul's, shall we say, he's not robbing. He's, he's using the comparison from Psalm 68 here, where uh, these freed soldiers would be a part of the celebration. And so these were often referred to as recaptured captives, prisoners who had been taken prisoner again, so to speak, by their own king, and then they would be given their freedom. And so, of course, this is, this is pointing to Christ. His, he, he's the king, and he's the one who's come and done some marvelous things here. What, what, what do we see? Three things. Three things that... Christ does. Number one, Christ ascended on high. He ascended on high. And so that phrase, when he ascended on high, depicts a triumphant King Jesus returning from battle on earth 
coming back to his home city there, there in heaven. And he's coming back into the glory of the heavenly city with all of these trophies of his great victory. And that's what Christ did when he ascended in Acts chapter 1, right? The disciples were there, well, 11 of them, and they saw Christ ascend just as he said he, he was going to do. And he returns to heaven victorious, the conquering king. And then what do we see? Number two, that Christ set the captives free. How did he do that? Well, he did that through his crucifixion and his resurrection. In Colossians 2, there's a great verse there in Colossians 2, where it talks about how Christ conquered Satan and sin and death. The three great enemies were all conquered by that great victory. And in the process, he led captive a host of captives. All these these prisoners were set free. These people who were who were once enemies were were set free, no longer captives, and they were now returning to God. That's the imagery there. It's a glorious imagery. But then what did Christ do next? It says that He gave gifts to men. That, that's all there in those verses 8-10. through 10. So upon arriving in heaven, He gave gifts to people. He's like a triumphant conqueror who's distributing the spoils of war to his subjects. So Christ is, what is he doing? He's taking the trophies that he's won, and then he's distributing them throughout his kingdom. And so after his ascension came all the gifts that were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said that when I go, that he would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and you would be able to do greater things even than he did? Because of the Holy Spirit, who now indwells all believers. And He brings these gifts. What a glorious thing. And so when the Savior was exalted on high, He he sends the Spirit, and with the coming of the Spirit then comes His gifts to His church. And so Paul's point here is to explain that Jesus paid the infinite price, which then qualifies Him to be exalted above all the heavens. And, and by the way, that's, that's referring to pri- primarily to the throne of God. And he's doing that so he might rightfully have the authority to give gifts to his saints. And by that victory, he then gains the right to rule over his church and then give these gifts to all the individuals within his church. And notice it says that he might fill all things. What other way does Christ bring diversity to His church? Well, verse 11 tells us that Christ blesses His church through gifted people. There are people within the church who are literally gifts to you, the church. And notice in verse 11, it it talks about that He gave. That phrase, he gave, is emphasizing the sovereign choice and authority that was given to Christ because he is the one who perfectly fulfilled God's will. So who did Christ give to the church? Because this is clearly talking about men, people, 
So let me break it up this way. First of all, we see in this first category, we see apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets are mentioned there in verse 11. They are gifts to the church. And so in its primary sense, apostle is used in the New Testament only of the twelve, which, by the way, included Matthias. You can read about that in your Bible where Matthias was the one who replaced Judas because the Bible says Judas was an unbeliever even though he was originally a part of the the twelve. And then the Bible also mentions uh, the Apostle Paul who was uniquely set apart as an apostle to the Gentiles. And by the way, the qualifications for the apostleship uh, had to be they were chosen directly by Jesus Christ. They had to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. So Paul was the last to actually meet those qualifications. Therefore, it is not possible for there to be apostles in the church today. There are groups who claim to be Christian who claim to have apostles. Well, that's certainly not possible. But the the apostles were given three basic responsibilities. I'll put them on the screen here for you. Let me just read them out. So, number one, we see they were to lay the foundation of the church. We we already read about that over in Ephesians 2, verse 20, which mentions they were built, uh, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then number two, They were to receive and declare revelation of of God's Word. Again, we've already read about this in chapter 3, verse 5. Let me remind you, it says, um, it talks about the mystery of Christ in verse 4. Verse 5 says, Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then the third basic responsibility of the apostles was they were to to give confirmation of God's word through signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, uh, what was the point of all those signs, wonders, and miracles? It was authenticating their message. So once the message was complete, there was no point now for the signs, the wonders, and miracles. But the other uh, gift to the church mentioned here is prophets. These are New Testament prophets who are also appointed by God as special gifts. These are men who are given to the church. Now it seems the office of prophet was exclusively for work within a local church, in a local congregation, whereas the apostles seem to be to the universal church in, in a much broader ministry. It's interesting, uh, for example, in one reason I'm saying this, uh, the Apostle Paul was called a prophet at one point. Did you know that? So when, when before he becomes the Apostle Paul, Paul was ministering in a local church, the church at Antioch. And in Antioch, he is called a prophet. But later on, he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Anyway, that's, that's one of my reasons for thinking this way. 
So the, the first group here is the apostles and prophets. The next group mentioned is evangelists. And one of the uh, people who are mentioned in the Bible as an evangelist is Philip. Not the guy sitting here, but uh, this guy lived a long time ago. But Philip demonstrates that an evangelist, <laughs> we have interesting ideas, I certainly do, of what is an evangelist. Now maybe this doesn't work in your context, but when I was growing up, I used to think of, as, of an evangelist as a guy who had seven suits and seven sermons. And so he just traveled around all the time. He'd wear his one of his seven suits every night and preach one of his seven sermons, and then he'd go on to some other church somewhere else. And he just continually was moving around in his road show. But the New Testament evangelist, that, that's not him, okay? So if that's your imagery of an evangelist, it's the wrong one. See, New Testament evangelists were missionaries and church planters. And they went where Christ was not named, where people didn't know the gospel, and they would lead people to faith in the Savior. And then they would teach these new believers the Word of God. They would build them up in the faith, and then they would move on to new territories. That's the biblical evangelist. They're gifts to God's church. And then the last group here mentioned is pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. Now the the word pastor there means shepherd. And the word shepherd, in fact my ESV has even used the word shepherd there, verse 11. But, but what does it mean? It's emphasizing the care of the protection, and the leadership for God's flock. And then teaching has to do with the primary function of the pastor. So though teaching can be identified as a ministry of its own, and it certainly is in 1 Corinthians 12, see, what's going on here is pastors and teachers are best understood as one office in the church. It's one office, and it's interesting in our English Bibles, it usually puts the word and, which is the Greek word chi, and it has nothing to do with food. But anyway, it usually puts it right there between pastors or shepherds and teachers. And that Greek word chi means, it could mean this, that is, or you could put in in particular. So you could translate it shepherds, that is, teachers, or pastors in particular, who are teaching. It could be translated that way. So it, it makes the teachers in the context explanatory of the pastors. Does that make sense? And that's why some people put hyphens there and, and, and just say pastor-teacher. And, and by the way, that meaning cannot be con conclusively proven just in this context alone. But let me give you another context. And uh, in First. Timothy 5 or 17, what it's doing here is it clearly puts the two functions of a pastor together in the one verse. So look, look at this. See if you can figure out what are the two functions of a pastor teacher. It says here in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders, which, which is a pastor, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So what are they? 
What are the two functions of a pastor shepherd? Number one, they rule the flock. They have oversight. And that's why sometimes we see that word overseer or bishop in our Bibles. The bishop has oversight over the people or the flock of God. And then number two, of course, they're to teach the Bible. And by the way, that's where the authority comes from. It's a God-given authority to this particular office to teach the Bible. But I want to end today because... uh, uh, well, I want to end today by talking about spiritual gifts. And we, we see, number four, that, that Christ blesses His church through spiritual gifts. Now, we've talked about these gifted people here. And uh, this is a bit of a, it's not a rabbit trail. I, I call it an add-on here. Based on some of the questions I've received from some of you as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, because some of you aren't familiar, familiar with spiritual gifts, Some of you said you don't even know what your spiritual gift or gifts are. How can you use them in the body of Christ and not know what they are? That's that's a challenge. And so we've we've talked a little bit about that. So let me introduce you very quickly. This is a very quick introduction to spiritual gifts. So I've given you blanks on your paper. Let me encourage you to write these down and maybe somehow highlight what you think your spiritual gift is, and and then have a conversation with other believers. And, and of course, by all means, pray and ask God to give you wisdom that He would reveal to you what is your spiritual gift or gifts and how you might use them within His body. Right? So here, here's the main passage. Oh, by the way, let me give you a definition. Uh, coming from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book, he He says a spiritual gift is this, quote, A spiritual gift is an ability, any ability, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. So, two things, right? Let me just highlight those for you. So, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Might not be the same thing as a talent, right? So, don't confuse this with physical talents you might have. But these are things specifically empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then you have to use them to minister in the church. So there's, there's certainly things you guys have other talents that aren't used in the church. Well, then those would not be a spiritual gift. Okay, So these things come together, make them a spiritual gift. And the, the two main passages are in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Let me just quickly read these to you, and then we'll, we'll talk about them. And I've highlighted the spiritual gifts for you on the screen. So there's seven specific gifts mentioned here in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Here's what the Bible says. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there you go, the seven gifts. We'll, I'll, I'll mention what they are later on, but they are prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, the gift of, of giving or, or contributing in generosity, and then lead a leader or leadership 
and then the gift of mercy. So those are seven. That's not an exhaustive list. And you'll notice there's they're not exactly the same in 1 Corinthians 12 here either. There's six I'm going to mention from 1 Corinthians 12. So this tells me this is not an exhaustive list. There's probably other spiritual gifts that aren't even mentioned in the Bible because even the list within the Bible do not match up. There is some overlap, but not necessarily. Okay, so anyway, here's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. And then verse 28 mentions the gift of helps and the gift of administration. So there, those are six gifts mentioned in, and there's others mentioned as well in 1 Corinthians 12. So, so just looking at those, there's 16 gifts. So let's talk about them individually. Very quickly, I'll describe them for you, and then I'm going to give you a few areas of possible ministry. You might use this gift, of how you might use this gift. Does that make sense? All right, so these are various ways of explaining these gifts I've got from various resources, books, so forth, okay? So uh, here's, how, here's how you can describe the first one, which is evangelism. Evangelism. So evangelism, here's your kind of your def, working definition, is the ability to present the gospel message with exceptional clarity and an overwhelming burden so that unsaved people are moved to accept Christ as Savior. So how might you use the gift of evangelism in the church? What kind of ministries would this person be able to serve in? Well, this person would uh, most likely make a good church planter. <laughs> right? So someone like uh, the evangelist in the Bible, Philip. I- I'm guessing he had the gift of evangelism. Uh, someone who's a street preacher probably has the gift of evangelism, or somebody who just loves to get out there and go knock on people's doors, and they just they want to blanket the entire city. And sometimes they're so I've known guys who are so passionate about this, they'll travel all around New Zealand, and they're just constantly doing this. They probably have the gift of evangelism, and then people who are who are passionate about apologetics. Uh, sometimes have the spiritual gift of evangelism. So those are are just some ways the gift of evangelism manifests itself in the church. And then number two is teaching. Teaching. Spiritual gift of teaching is the ability to grasp, arrange, and present the truths of God's Word effectively and in an organized manner so that the recipients understand the truths and are changed by that understanding. There's a lot going on there, but uh, hopefully you understand. So what areas of ministry might you see someone with the gift of teaching? Well, obviously, somebody who's teaching Sunday school might have this gift. Somebody who's teaching children or, or an adult Sunday school class or somebody who's involved in discipleship or... Uh, an author, an author writing a book, a Christian book, might have this gift. And then, of course, people who are teaching in a Bible institute or in a, in a seminary 
probably have this spiritual gift. Those are some ways it might be used. Number three is exhortation. Exhortation is the ability to motivate believers to be faithful to God and to be growing spiritually. Areas of ministry would include biblical counseling, discipleship, so helping someone to to grow in Christ. And then maybe there's some people who manifest this by helping people understand the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and then they come... These kind of people will come alongside you after the Word of God has been preached, and then they they might help explain things to you if you have questions or maybe just help you grow a little bit more. Uh, Some people are really good at that. That's that's really helpful. And then number four is the gift of helps. Helps is the ability to perform any task or responsibility with joy, (laughs) which benefits others and meets practical and material needs that exist. I'm glad we have some people with this gift. This is really helpful because uh, just, here's how it might manifest itself. For example, uh, people who work in church offices, performing various activities in church offices, probably need this gift. Uh, people who are involved in prayer ministry probably have this gift. Or uh, even somebody who, who might be uploading sermons online probably have this gift. Or people who are involved in in the care and the stewardship of church buildings. And even people who uh, in just a couple moments are going to wash out your teacup in the kitchen and clean the bench probably have the gift of helps. These people are awesome. Every church needs these kind of people. They're so helpful, no pun intended. And then number five is ministry. The gift of ministry is the ability to serve other Christians in need and who are unable to help themselves. So areas of ministry would include someone taking care of widows. Like I think my father-in-law probably has this spiritual gift. This was for 30 plus years. This is one of the things he did. Ministering to the widows in the church. A, A vital ministry. Or someone who's ministering to single mothers in the church. They have unique needs. And someone with this gift is uniquely enabled by the Holy Spirit to to look after these people and to care for this part of God's flock. It's a great ministry. And number six is someone here has the gift of mercy. Mercy. I think we have at least one person in our congregation with this gift. See if you can figure out who it is. Anyway, this person has the extraordinary ability to feel and act upon genuine empathy for others who suffer distressing physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual pain. Areas of ministry would be preparing meals for people uh, during various times of need and in other people's lives. What a great thing, by the way. Uh, in fact, I heard just Andrew Hope, he, he had mentioned uh, he was really thankful for those of you who prepared meals for them during time of need. These are people who love going to the hospital and visiting people who've had surgery or whatever. Uh, these are people who go to the prisons and minister to prisoners. and These are people who, who work in the crash and, and serve our children 
These are people who ministered to disabled people. Uh, there, there are people with this gift who might even learn sign language and, and will teach in sign language to people who are deaf. What a great ministry. Uh, these are people who go to the nursing homes and minister to the people who can't actually come to a local congregation anymore. Those are people with the gift of mercy. And then number seven, the gift of giving, which is the special ability to contribute material resources to the work of the Lord with two qualifications, generosity and cheerfulness. Because <laughs> I know some, some of us give. We might drop our check or whatever in the offering box or however we give to God. But some of us might struggle with the cheerfulness part. <clears throat> but areas of ministry here are giving above normal offerings. The, these people would happily give away everything and starve themselves for a week. I mean, that's, that's how passionate sometimes these people can be who have the gift of giving. I'm not saying that's you, but these, these are people who love supporting missionaries, support special projects of the church provide needed materials for various church ministries or give substantial help in benevolent offerings or help throughout the week uh, for people who are in need. It's a great ministry. And this next one is not specifically mentioned in your Bible, but it, some people think this is a spiritual gift coming from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3 and it's voluntary poverty. So 1 Corinthians 13.3 kind of talks about this, and that's why some people think it's a spiritual gift. But it is the extraordinary ability to live a simple, conservative, and unencumbered life free of material responsibilities in order to devote large amounts of time, energy, and other resources to essential ministries. So... How this might manifest itself in ministry is somebody who decides to just sacrifice big time living in a first world country to go live in a third world country. There are people who give up all the luxuries of toilets that can flush and heat, central heating or whatever, right? It's just a few examples. And then they go live in a third world country where... Uh, you know, they don't have a toilet. They don't have a heater or various things like that, right? So that's where that's coming from. Number nine is the gift of leadership. This is the special ability to set goals in accordance with God's purpose for the future and then to communicate these goals to others in such a way that they voluntarily and harmoniously work together to accomplish these goals for the glory of God. By the way, if you want these definitions, come see me later. Some of them are quite long. But areas of ministry for leadership are you might lead a, a church work day. You know, for example, we've had these things where we come to the school hall and, and we, we clean and we do, you might paint or whatever it might be. Uh, these are people who have the ability uh, to have a vision for what God wants and then, then are able to communicate that to other people in the church motivate other people to serve God in this way. They, they're able to lead large church events and activities. Uh, sometimes these people are 
pastors, assistant pastors, in various forms of in larger churches. And so they have pastoral ministry over various areas in the church. That's how it can manifest itself. Number 10 is the gift of administration. Administration is the capacity to organize and administer with such efficiency and spirituality that not only is the project brought to a satisfactory conclusion, but it's done harmoniously and with evident blessing. So areas of ministry or administration are organizing church events, such as work days, maybe banquets, maybe uh, maybe ladies' retreats or men retreat or a teen camp or whatever it might be. Uh, this, this person might be the church secretary. Uh, this person might be an assistant pastor in a larger church who has assistant pastors. All right, so so I, I know larger churches often uh, somebody who has a gift of teaching. It's funny how this works. They don't usually have the gift of administration. It's funny. Just if you if you're observant, you'll notice that too. Somebody might be a great preacher, but useless when it comes to administration. And so it's usually somebody with a gift of administration. That pastor would hire that person because they know their weaknesses. That's usually the case. And then number 11, this one might be strange to some of you, but again, coming from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, uh, there are some people out there who think martyrdom is a spiritual gift. I know this one's kind of odd, because you don't don't get to use this one very often, do you? (laughs) Right? But uh, this is... This is the special ability to undergo suffering for the faith, even to death, while consistently displaying a joyous and victorious attitude that brings glory to God. It has been reported, by the way, there are something, somewhere around 300,000 Christians die for their faith every year. 300,000 Christians are dying for their faith every year, approximately. And so areas of ministry would be this person goes into dangerous places, dangerous ministries. For example, they might go to inner cities where there's all kinds of gangs. And so they, they're putting themselves in harmful places, dangerous places. These are people who go to third world places, third world involved in third world missions, or they, they go to that, uh, that 1040 window on planet Earth, and they're involved in missions particularly some of the most dangerous places would be where where the the state is run by islam or uh hindus can be quite violent and dangerous as well so so there are people who who are who are going into those places and uh they they don't even they don't even want their names mentioned they don't want their photos taken because it's it's that dangerous so someone with the gift of martyrdom might be that person. And then number 12 is the gift of prophecy. So th- this is a bit of a controversial one. So here's the, my working definition. It is the ability to authorita- authoritatively speak truth as received from God. So this, is, th- this could be a preacher, somebody who's preaching and teaching the Word of God. That's probably where you're going to see this manifesting itself. 
By the way, I'm not claiming to hear an audible voice from God. All right? That's not what this is talking about here. And then number 13 is discernment. The special ability to determine whether certain behavior or teaching is divine, human, or is it satanic? Uh, We need people in the church like this who can call out the lies and the deceit for what it is and and pull off the covers and say, see, look, (laughs) see Satan under there? He's trying to fool you. So this is someone who is able to evaluate new ministries and even evaluate uh, people and reveal who they really are, pointing out false teachers and false teaching, for example. And then number 14 is uh, the spiritual gift of knowledge, which is the special ability to discover, accumulate, analyze, and clarify information and ideas that are pertinent to the health and ministry of the church. So someone with this gift is probably going to be a Bible translator, someone who's assembling both biblical as well as extra-biblical information and then uh, is is able to use that for the edification of the body. Uh, For example, it it can show itself in all sorts of ways. For example, this kind of a person with this gift might take a list of Bible verses that might relate to some area of ministry in the church and bless the church by, by taking stuff from all over the Bible and showing the church how we can use the Bible verses in this area of ministry. Or th- this person might get, um, well, here's how I used it when we lived in Hastings. We, had a, we, we, we added on to the church building and did a huge renovation of the church building when we were down in Hastings. And so one of my ministries was I was going around to all these various businesses and builders, getting quotes, trying to do all this stuff that nobody else in the church wanted to do, so it was thrown on me. And so so here I am kind of organizing all this for the edification of that particular body. Because all those people didn't want to do that. It was a bunch of numbers and people, and it was just too confusing and too much. So I was able to take all that and collate it, put it on one piece of paper or on the screen so that we could make decisions. So someone with the gift of knowledge is, is a huge blessing to the church. And then number 15 is wisdom, which is the special ability to apply revealed knowledge to the work of God. So areas of ministry include planning new areas of ministry and developing ministries. So so maybe coming up with new ministries and then taking existing ministries and developing them further and how the church might go farther with that particular ministry. And then the last one, the the Bible, that I'm going to mention is faith. The spiritual gift of faith is the special ability to believe God will miraculously remove hindrances in the spread of the gospel. So this person is an encouragement in beginning new ministries because you know how it is. Some people just don't like change. They can't handle change, which is why some of you sit in the same exact seats every week. And even though it's been several months since you've been here, it's funny, where did you all go? Some of you haven't even been here for years and you're still sitting in the same seat. So it's funny how that works. And you might even go to a different building, Phil, right? 
and you're still sitting in the same area. Let me guess. Right? No. Okay. Don't ruin, don't ruin my illustration, bro. Don't do that. I know how you, you, some of you just don't like change. You can't handle that. It messes with your brain too much. And so you need someone with a gift of faith who can encourage new ministries to blossom and grow and, and go on for God. Uh, and, and usually these people are great prayer warriors involved in the prayer ministry of the church as well. And some of you are really observant, and you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I know 1 Corinthians 12 talks about one you haven't mentioned. Anybody observant? Pick up on, I've purposely left one out. Probably the most controversial one, which is the spiritual gift of tongues. Tongues. I purposely left this out because... By the way, tongues is just foreign languages. Uh, I left it out because 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 says, As for tongues, they will cease. Now, my personal belief is the gift of tongues ended in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you want to know my full explanation on that, which takes up pages of notes, uh, you can come and talk to me later. I might email those to you if you want to know about that. But anyway... Let's wrap this up. So we've been studying this particular topic here of gifts. And some of you might actually have more questions now than (laughs) we started with. Hopefully I've answered some of your questions. Some of you might have more questions that haven't been answered yet. I understand. Uh, And and so hopefully, though, hopefully, we've discovered many truths that we have to put in place. And I, and I have three main truths. Oh, if, you, if you don't get everything, at least get these, okay? Here's three main truths that I want you to see, to believe, and grasp a hold of. Number one, that each believer must know and accept that they have been given at least one spiritual gift by God. It comes from God. Because we've seen that Christ is the one, the head of the church is giving gifts, right? And he sends his Holy Spirit to to work that out in in his church. So you have at least one. Uh, My assumption is that all of you have at least two. And, and of course, that's going to be used in in showing yourself in various ways. And then number two, each believer must then follow biblical wisdom principles to determine which gifts God has given to them. So if you don't know what your spiritual gift is still, that's okay. Don't freak out. But let me encourage you to head, start walking down the path of finding out what that is so that you can use it and figure out how you fit in the body. Right? Because 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body with all of its parts. So you need to figure out, are you a toe? Are you an ear, a nose, an eye? Are you a hand, a leg, a foot, a mouth? You know, which part in the body are you? Figure that out. Use the biblical principles. Right? Go to God's Word, read His Word, study His Word, particularly those main ones in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Pray for wisdom, for God to illuminate you to how you can be used in His body. Talk to other Christians, godly Christians. It might be a help to you on that as well. And then number three, last one is that each believer must use their spiritual gifts for the edification of God's people, the church. 
That's the purpose. It's, it's not for your exaltation and your, your own pride and arrogance. It is so you can fit in the body and then be a blessing and a help and minister to the body of Christ. Right? So that's why you need to know what it is so you know where you fit in. Because it's not helpful when the nose is trying to be an eye and the eye is trying to be an ear. And the toe's saying, I don't like being a toe. I want to be something else. That doesn't work too well. You need to know how you fit in the body so that the body can be a healthy body. So those are some some main truths we need to know, believe, and then practice. And so may God enable you to know which part are you. And to know this Christ intimately and, and what he's doing within his body, and that we would we would worship him and, and, and him alone, and then serve in his body for his cause and his purposes. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing book. Thank you for using the Apostle Paul, bringing him out of darkness into light, making him an apostle to the Gentiles, because I think we're all Gentiles here. And thank you for raising up a church within a such a heathen place like Ephesus and using them as, as light in, in a very dark place. But yet uh, we know there's great truths here and application for us as well. So would you illuminate us that we do understand how there can be unity and diversity in the same body. So... May we glory in your richness here that we're seeing in Ephesians 4 and then live it out for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.